Hello, everybody. Welcome. As we continue on in the study we're doing of the New Testament, and um, this is our 208th study in the New Testament. So that's been, that's good. And uh, plug in right along. That's 208 weeks of study in the New Testament. Um, we're under a year now. We should finish up at the end of this year. So with the New Testament and then the beginning of the new year, hopefully if everything works out, we'll pop right into the Old Testament. So um, we're plugging along. Um, I, I tell you this when we do this. Uh, it's, I do it for the sake of context. It's very good to read the scripture in context, to, to look at it like this. Um, so you can see, um, you know, oftentimes we know a lot of verses, but we, we just kind of know the verse and we haven't really looked at it in, in how it's, why it says what it says and where it's at. And, and um, if we're not careful, we can take things out of context. And we never want to do that if we can avoid it. We want to try and keep them in the context in which they're written. And so remember in the New Testament, especially in these letters that we're reading, um, they're, they're generally addressing situations that had uh, arisen in the early church. Um, before we got to Hebrews, we read all of Paul's letters. We did that, you know, each one in the, as close to we could figuring out as to when it was written. We did them in order. Ties in with his missionary journeys. And he was always addressing problems that had arisen uh, in the church. Because, you know, it was a brand new thing, the church. And uh, there's a lot of questions. And they were dealing with sin, just like we deal with. And, and uh, how to handle it and what it looks like. And, and you know, uh, different people were involved uh, in the process. And they were bringing in all their stuff with them. And, and so, um, you know, the, the letters that Paul wrote were really addressing situations and so the the letters need to be understood in the context of those situations they still apply today because they were all inspired by the holy spirit but they apply within the context of how they were written and um and so we move through all those and now we're into the book of hebrews we're not really sure who wrote the book of hebrews we know it's inspired scripture but they they just aren't sure exactly who wrote it um a lot of people used to think paul wrote it but a lot of debate now that it probably wasn't Paul. They think it was one of Paul's companions. Just because the, the writing style holds a lot of Paul's thoughts, but it's different enough that they don't believe it was, it was Paul. So um, could have been Apollos, could have been Luke. They're, they're not sure. It could have, could have been any number of people who wrote the book. Um, but it's there in the, in the scripture, and we know it to be divinely inspired. It's also different from most of the letters that we've read so far because it's uh, uh, targeted at um, uh, J- Jewish Christians, and in particular, uh, Jewish Christians who, after having been persecuted um, quite intently, are thinking about um, going back to the old way of doing things. And the writer of Hebrews is challenging them at virtually every point, as we've said, that there's nothing to go back to. They've, they've found something much better um, in Christ. And, and he's going through in a detailed way um, why Jesus is much better uh, and than what they came from and, and how it all fits scripturally within the Old Testament. And, and I've, as I've told you, in the book of Hebrews, there's a lot of Old Testament scripture that's quoted, um, more than any of the other um, letters, uh, because it was written to an audience uh, who would have a background in the Old Testament scripture, so it would make sense to them. When Paul was doing a lot of his writing, he was writing to people that didn't have a background in scripture. And so, you know, he would, he would, um, he would use it, but not as um, in-depth as the writer of Hebrews does. And so we've been looking at a lot of these concepts throughout, um, throughout this letter. And in the last chapter, um, the, the, the writer of Hebrews, uh, the writer really contrasted Jesus' priesthood um, with that of the Old Testament 
order of priests. And that's pretty much what seven was about. We talked about Melchizedek and how all that fit in and, and how he kept showing up in the, in the writer of Hebrews who was making a point um, that, that primarily the, 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 new, um, the new high priest ministry in Jesus doesn't rest on family line like the old priesthood did, um, but on the power of an indestructible life that, that this new priest prophesied would come not in the uh, family line of Levi, which had been where all the priests came from, um, but would, would be in the order of Melchizedek. And, um, and so that was the whole sort of thing that we looked at pretty much last week and that this former priesthood was set aside um, ultimately because it was unable to provide perfect access to God. Um, in Jesus, we have a, a better hope, Scripture told us, by which we draw near to God. And also that the, the former priests, those, those actual priests, they died, but Jesus continues forever as a permanent priest. And therefore, he's able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. And so um, we, we know, that's what we looked at last week, that, that this thing that we have is so much better now because of who Jesus is, fully God, fully man, he sympathizes with us, he fulfills everything that needed to be fulfilled, and he gives us um, access to God the Father, um, that, that's, you know, amazing access because, you know, we talked about that God now sees us in the perfection of his son. And also, um, this, this high priest, um, because he lives forever, he also continually intercedes for us on our behalf um, which is an amazing thing. And so, you know, when we do mess up, we can claim the promised mercy that's available to us. And, and under the daily sort of pressures of our lives, we can ask for the help of Jesus who, who sympathizes with us and understands us because he lived this life as well. And he knows um, how to help us towards the path of real, full, now and forever abundant life. Well, what happens now in chapter 8? It's a fairly short chapter, really. Um, the writer makes an important observation that this change in priesthood from the old priesthood to the new priesthood in Christ um, also institutes another, uh, other changes in the elements of the Old Testament system. We talked a little bit about that in the law um, last week in Hebrews 7. But, but what we're going to talk about in Hebrews 8 is the changing of the covenant, and, and that is, there's a change in the nature of the promises that God has made to us that define how he relates to us as his people. And this all happens because of what Jesus has done. There's a whole change in the entire system from the way it was to the way it is. And that's what the writer of Hebrews is telling the people, how can you possibly even think about going back? Because what's better, what it is now is, 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 is what we were waiting for. The perfect has come. It's It's here. This is what it was always meant to be. And, and you know, remember, people struggle. I, I think we can all relate to this. Um, um, uh, when life gets hard, it gets tougher, right? I mean, you're, everything gets tougher. You're, you're, you know, the way you, you believe and the way you follow and the way Because you, you struggle. You know, because we, I think we would all like life not to be hard. I mean, that's the goal, right? <laughs> and yet, even in Christ... Um, and even with all the amazing gifts and promises we have, we still exist in a fallen world. And it's, it's a mess. And sometimes things happen that we don't like. Um, it's a, you know, it's a, we still live in the midst of you know, tears and pain. And the things that were promised will no longer be when, when we're with Him forever still happen. We have to deal with those things. And then we don't like that. And uh, it, it's harder in those times to persevere, to press on, to press in, to... Um, you know, remember what really matters and what it's all about when you're struggling. And so these people were struggling. So 
when we talk about them, it's, it's never, I, I never want to do it in such a way as like, who would ever think about that? It's a, it's a, I get it. Um, it's a struggle. And, and so, but the writer is encouraging me, look, just because it's a struggle, don't give up. Because you'll, you'll, you'll never, there's nothing back in any other direction. Life is always found in Christ. So that's uh, where we're at. And Hebrews 8 then is really about this new covenant um, that we have. So Hebrews 8, 13 verses. I'm going to be reading out of the NIV. That's what's on your notes. You can read along whatever translation you have. It's all good. Beginning in verse 1. The point of what we're saying is this. We do have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven and who serves in the sanctuary the true tabernacle set up by the Lord, not by man. Every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. And so it was necessary for this one also to have something to offer. If he were on earth, he would not be a priest, for there are already men who offer the gifts prescribed by the law. They serve at a sanctuary that is a copy and a shadow of what is in heaven. This is why Moses was warned when he was about to build a tabernacle. See to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. But the ministry Jesus had received is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is mediator is superior to the old one. And it is founded on better promises. For if there had been nothing wrong with the first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. But God found fault with the people and said, The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they did not remain faithful to my covenant, and I turned away from them, declares the Lord. This is a covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. By calling this covenant new, he has made the first one obsolete. And what is obsolete and aging aging will soon disappear. Blessed be the word of the Lord. So, pretty short chapter. But uh, in context, following along in this discussion about the changes that took place because of Jesus from the old system to the new one, from the old covenant to the new, from the old priesthood, to the new in Christ. So the first seven verses, um, then basically in the old Jewish system, the, the priests were chosen, as I said in the introduction, from the tribe of Levi. They offered sacrifices on the altar day after day for the forgiveness of sins. It was perpetual. It had to keep going and going and going and going and going. Um, and I, you know, we can't even relate, I don't think, to... Um, it wouldn't have been clean and pretty. I mean, I, I don't even want to describe it, but they were sacrificing animals to atone for sin all day, every day. That's what happened. It was a mess. Um, the picture, it was supposed to be a mess because sin's a mess. And the ultimate sacrifice was going to be a lot to deal with that Jesus was going to make. So um, it was a picture. It was a shadow of what was going to happen. But, but you know, we, we talk about it and we, we can't even comprehend it. Um, what was going on. But this was going on day after day after day by the priests from the tribe of Levi who were, um, who were trying to deal with sin and, and um, by the sacrifice of animals um, find forgiveness for the people. But it, it never took. It, always, it was constant. It had to, 
had to keep going. Jesus then comes, not from the tribe of Levi, but in the order of Melchizedek, and he's the high priest who offered a perfect sacrifice that ended the need for further sacrifice and also ended the need for the old priesthood at the same time. Because Jesus was the perfect sacrifice and willingly sacrificed himself, sinless, perfect sacrifice. It was enough, fully God, fully man, that sacrifice on the cross. That was enough to pay for all the sins that we've ever done or ever will do. It was enough. It was the perfect sacrifice. Um, uh, and he, he extended it there. So once he did that, everything changed, um, at least in, in the heavenly realm and in the eternal realm. Now, you still had sacrifices going on in the t- temple in Jerusalem for a time. Um, so um, let's just say roughly, you know, all dates are rough. Um, but but uh, Jesus' sacrifice would have been 30 A.D.-ish, 33, 36, somewhere around there, depending on how, you, how it gets dated and where and how close they got to being the truth and everything. But at some point, at that point in time. Um, and, and they would have continued. The, 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 um, the, the Jews wouldn't have recognized that as, a, as the ultimate sacrifice. So they would have kept on in the temple for a season. And it, it actually helps us to date the book of Hebrews because an event happens in A.D. 70 that stops the sacrifices, and we'll talk about that in a minute. I want to read you the history. Um, in A.D. 70, and he uses the present tense in verse 4, the writer does, there already are priests who offer the gifts. Um, so we know the book of Hebrews was written before A.D. 70, because he's saying it's still going on, and it was up until A.D. 70. But then the, the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed, and that ended the sacrificial system that had been in place. The temple was completely destroyed, in AD 70. And I thought, um, because it was kind of a short chapter, I'd just read you a little bit of the history about how that happened. And uh, so you can get in context of what was going on at that time in the world. Um, And uh, this was an article in Christianity Today about the process. And so there was a Roman uh, procurator. Remember, the the Romans uh, allowed the... um, They had a a way of, uh, you know, when they overtook other countries and when they... They let the government pretty much stay in place, but they appointed their own heads into those governments or they appointed people from there that they controlled and they um, collected taxes from it, but they let them kind of stay and deal with most of the day-to-day stuff. And, and then what they did was they stuck an army in there and they sort of protected that group. And so that group sort of politically stayed intact and um, uh, often they, you know, whatever religious part of their, the Romans would often let that exist too. That was all part of it. They wanted them to sort of be as content as they could and pay taxes. Um, which is what they were looking for. And so they figured out over time this was the best way to keep them going. But they would um, appoint then leaders either from that country or put other people in there that did it. Well, they had procurators uh, at the time and that they were appointed Romans though. And this guy's name was um, Jesseus Florus. And he, he was a lover of money according to history and he didn't like the Jewish people at all. And he ruled Judea. And he just didn't care about them or their religious sensibilities or anything. And, and so if the tax revenues got low, what he would do is he would just take silver from the temple by force, which obviously didn't go very well um, with the inhabitants of Jerusalem. They were not for that whatsoever. And so there, uh, this uproar grew against him, and over time, um, uh, it, it, it got bigger and bigger. And around A.D. 66... Uh, this guy was, got tired of the uprising and, and this, this, uh, this procurator, Florus, 
he sent uh, troops in and they massacred 3,600 Jewish citizens. And, and rather than stop the rebellion, what it did was just make it go in, insane. And the, the Jewish people revolted um, uh, and they, they started um, wiping out what they could of the Romans that were there. And they were fairly effective for a while. And so this other um, governor, uh, Callus, now he's got, he's got this big mess that he's dealing with. Um, he comes from Syria with 20,000 Roman soldiers and he besieges Jerusalem for six months. That's what they used to do. You know, when they besieged a city, they would just camp out of sight. So nothing could get in and out and they'd try and starve them out. Um, he did that for six months and, and uh, yet the, the Jewish people figured out how to, how to battle against him and actually they were very successful and killed 6,000 of those Roman soldiers and the Roman soldiers took off. And they left all their, a bunch of weapons behind which further um, weaponized the, the Jewish people in Jerusalem. And then Nero, who was the emperor at the time, he sends a better general, a guy named Vespasian, to just deal with the whole mess. And um, Vespasian goes in and deals with, the, with huge troops. He deals with the opposition in Galilee and then in the Transjordan and then Idumea. And then he circles in on Jerusalem. Um, but before they could finish what they were doing, Nero dies. And then there's a big sort of uproar in the, in the Roman thing. And uh, then this guy, Vespian, actually becomes the emperor. And uh, he appoints his son, whose name was Titus, to go and finish off this whole um, revolt. And so now Titus goes, not the Titus from the Bible, but this, this Roman guy, um, son of the emperor. And uh, they, had, they had sort of cut off Jerusalem. It was isolated from the rest of the nation. And, you know, they were starting to come up with their own factions inside and falling apart. And the siege uh, that, that kept going on, people were dying of starvation and, and plague. And uh, the Romans um, brought in these new war machines to the time to hurl boulders against the city walls. And they just started pounding the walls with these boulders and knocking them down. And for a while, the, the Jewish people were fighting all day, and then they would try and repair the walls at night. But first the one wall went down the outer wall, and then the second wall, then the third wall. And what was left of the defenders ran into the temple um, for uh, some sort of protection last line of defense and apparently this guy Titus didn't want to destroy the temple but his soldiers were so tired of fighting these guys and such a mess they burned it down and there you go AD 70 the temple was completely destroyed there was nowhere for them to any longer offer sacrifices and so the sacrificial system stopped in AD 70 stopped um what, what, what happened with the Jewish people at that time is they became what's known and they did this once in the exodus or in the exile Pardon me. Um, they became a people of the book and they would study the Torah and they would do other things, but they, they couldn't offer sacrifices without the temple being in place. And so, um, and that AD 70 marked the end of the Jewish um, estate until 1948. Pretty long time off. Um, and, uh, and so, like I said, the destruction changed the uh, Jews' worship. Um, and uh, the sacrificial system was gone and so they came up with new rituals at the time um, and also because some people asked then you know because this was Jerusalem well where were the Christians at the time um, by this point in time the Christians had pretty much been driven completely out of Jerusalem so they just weren't around they'd been dispersed from the persecution and, uh, and so that was that um, and so that's kind of the history of what had happened at that time and if you know if you're, if you're reading the Jewish history what's left after that is that a group of them go somehow and overrun Masada, which should have never happened, the Jews do, and they're in there for three years before they finally, um, the, the Romans keep going after them, after them, after them, and they finally kill themselves, but uh, that took a long time. So, that's all that story. 
And also then, um, the other thing with the church that was impacted then, and, and before that time, um, Christians, you know, a lot of them were Jewish in Jerusalem, were still Christians. They could still go to the synagogue. At 80, 70, they were kicked out. So Christians were no longer allowed in the synagogues back then. That was the split. So lots of stuff happened at that point in time. So that's kind of where we're at when things are going on with Hebrews. And the letter is written before all that happens, but, but right around that time. All right, then we move into verses um, 8 through 12. And actually, all of Hebrews 8 through 12 is a direct quote from Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. It's actually a direct quote from the Bible. I want to read it again, Jeremiah. This is Jeremiah 31, 34. The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant. Though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is a covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. Um, so um, what's happening here then in the rest of this, this chapter is that um, these verses are, are comparing the new covenant with the old covenant. The old covenant was a covenant of law between God and Israel. The new covenant is one of grace. The new covenant is based on Jesus' offer to forgive our sins and bring us to God through his sacrificial death on the cross. And in this new covenant, God now puts his laws in our minds and writes them on our hearts. And then he fills and empowers us by his spirit so that we can live this life for him. That's the difference that we have that didn't happen before. Because of what Jesus has done in this new covenant, rather than giving us a list of external laws, the, the spirit of God has all this stuff in our hearts so that we know what we should be doing and shouldn't be doing. Now, sometimes we still choose not to do what's the right thing. We talk about that all the time, right? And that's sin. Um, but, but, but we know what's in there, and now it's a process of just walking it out and being empowered by the Spirit, and it's a life that takes forever until we get back to Jesus. That's the only when we're going to make it. We're still going to mess up until we get to be with Jesus. Um, but we now have um, you know, access to God because of what Jesus has done, the perfect Jesus, that we have access to God in the process. And so we can, we can read the book and we can find all the principles for living and, and then we, we can have the Holy Spirit help us to apply these to our lives, which he's constantly doing um, along the journey. And our hearts are transformed. That's the whole thing about a new covenant. Now it's come in our hearts. So hopefully our hearts are being transformed as we go along. And then uh, in verse 13, what had happened with the recipients of the letter, like I said, because of the persecution, they'd grown very cold. They'd stop growing. They'd start pressing in. They'd stop pressing into Jesus. And so they lost the joy they experienced when they first found him. And, and uh, um, we always have to be careful of that because life can happen and we can sort of lose that joy. And when, when, we, when we start to lose and walk away from the joy, um, it gets harder to keep pressing in and pressing on and growing in the Lord. But we should always be growing and being transformed by the power of the Spirit. It should be an ever-increasing thing. Now, there'll be ebbs and flows, but we should always be pressing in because there's always more for us to learn. It's an ongoing process. And so, you know, it's, it's basically a, an admonition to stay connected to God in the good times and in the hard times because He's our, always our source for life. Real now, full and abundant, forever life is only found in Him. And He wants us to have that life. And we find it by staying connected to Him, living by trying to do the next right thing, knowing that He empowers us by Spirit, knowing that He forgives us when we mess up, and loves us through, and that He's with us and for us. 
Um, and, you know, and, and, you know, we do our part. We, we spend, that's like our whole 90-day challenge. We want to spend time in prayer and we want to spend time in the Word and we want to make sure that we're making our life with Him a priority so that the rest of the, the things in our lives just kind of continue to flow on in Him. So, keep seeking Him with all you are, no matter what you're going through. And uh, that's what we learn from Hebrews 8. Next couple of chapters, they're all good. You'll like the next couple too. Very cool stuff. All the, all the rest of the book's good. Anyway. If you're watching my video, thank you for your time. If you're on television, thank you for spending time with us. We know how valuable your time is, and we appreciate you very much. Come and visit us sometime. If you get a chance here on Big Pine, we'd love to have you. And uh, if you need prayer, go to the website, keysvineyard.com. Find the prayer page. Shoot us a prayer request, and we'll be praying for you. But we'll get to see you soon. God bless you.